0: Amen. Well, today uh, we're going to revisit one final sermon in our Behold Our God series. This is a series we began back in February, and uh, we look forward to our new sermon series starting in September as we go through verse by verse through the book of James. Um, Last time we looked at this attribute of God's sovereignty. We want to revisit it this time, but last time... When we looked at God's sovereignty, we wrestled with the tension that exists between God's sovereignty and then human responsibility. It seems to be like the age-old question that gets addressed to all of us at different times. When talking about the sovereignty of God, this is actually one train of thought that is essential to travel down that needs to be addressed so that we took the opportunity to do that in the last sermon, and, and at the end of the sermon we still wrestled with it. We still wrestled with the mystery that exists in a sovereign God and humans that are made in His likeness that have free will, and we wrestled with that and we're okay with it. But this sermon is going to be a little bit different because what I seek to do with this time as we look at God's sovereignty is to show that instead of the reality of God's sovereignty being a foreboding and scary concept to us, which it can be, I would actually like to demonstrate from the Scriptures and then demonstrate from my own personal life how the sovereignty of God can be an ultimate source of comfort for us in some of the hardest moments of our life. And so it's a pretty heavy sermon that we'll be talking about today, and I'm going to share some stories from my life that are pretty heavy as well. But we want to talk about God's sovereignty, first of all, what it is, And then we want to notice from the Scriptures, how is it a source of comfort? How is God's sovereignty a source of comfort for those who read about in the Scriptures? And then finally, how can it be a source of comfort for us in our various seasons of life? And so as we start off, I want to pray, I want to ask God for His blessing to be upon us, that He would be pleased to comfort us as we seek to grasp the immensity of the topic, of the attribute of the sovereignty of God. So let's pray together as we start. God, we are desperate. We are certainly desperate. I am desperate to communicate um, this immense reality. And it can be very difficult to talk about. And it can seem very scary to us. But I pray that we would see from the scriptures that we would see from even the life, even as we just sang, my life, as we just saying about, we will overcome by the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. There's a story that you've given to me. There's a story that you've given to each and every one of us here. And we pray that we'd lean into the sovereignty of God here today and that you'd be pleased to comfort us as we seek to grasp the immensity of the topic. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So first of all, what is sovereignty. It's, a, it's kind of like the, the $10,000 word here today. It's a big word, right? And what we're going to do is we're going to assume that the definition that we came up with last time about the sovereignty of God was accurate and sufficient, so we're not going to start building it back together. We're just going to assume that the work we put into last time as we surveyed a whole bunch of scriptures that the definition we came up with was accurate, and this is what we came up with together as we looked at the Scriptures. We said that God is the unequaled, solitary being in the universe who is able to Himself actively execute and achieve all of His intentions that are rooted in His pleasurable purposes. That's a mouthful. (laughs) right? Like, I don't imagine that you can just like show up and spit that out. And I think the reason why it is a mouthful is that's actually what you would expect when dealing with such a complex and immense topic. God is the unequaled, solitary being in the universe who is able to himself actively execute and achieve all of his intentions that are rooted in his pleasurable purposes. As we try to wrap our minds around this, because that is true, our jaws should hit the floor. Because one thing I know is that I am not sovereign. I have a lot of intentions and things that I hope to have happen, but a lot of times it doesn't work out in reality. So our jaws should drop in the fact that our God is like this. We should worship We should be led to worship because what this definition means is that there is nothing that has ever happened or will ever happen that God has not purposed to happen. And so an an old theologian, Abraham Cooper, says this, There is not a square inch in the whole domain of human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry out, Mine! It's all His. All that has ever been, is right now, or will ever be, has been created from Him, through Him, and that will all result in His glorification. So Paul writes, to Him be the glory forever. What that tells me, at the very beginning of this message, is that we aren't the center of the solar system of the universe, with God revolving around us. It's just not the case. How many of you went to the fair this year? Like 10 days long, right? When you go to the fair, it's really easy to get drawn in and intoxicated by the smells, right? You're like, well, it depends on if it's a hot day and somebody doesn't have de- you know, deodorant on, right? But as you walk through, like, you're, you're, you're drawn in and intoxicated by the smells, And you might even shell over an arm and a leg for 20 cents worth of batter that's been deep fried and coated in sugar, right? Like it sounds really good, and it will actually really taste really good for a while, but if you keep going at it for long, that funnel cake is going to make you sick because it's deep fried like in fat and coated in sugar, right? Don't be deep fried and covered in a man-centered theology with you at the center of things. We must recommit to being more God-centered in our thoughts and in our thinking. So I want us at the very beginning of this message to hear the resolute resilience of the psalmist when he says, Not to us, O Lord. We don't want to be in the center of the solar system. Not to us. Not to us, O Lord. But to Your name give glory. For the sake of Your steadfast love, And of your faithfulness, this is not about us. And that's what sovereignty tells us about. So that's what sovereignty is. But can sovereignty be a source of comfort to us? That's what we want to wrestle with today. Because what we're going to see is we are completely out of control. How can that be a source of comfort to us? So I want to look at examples of God's sovereignty resulting in comfort in the Scriptures. And I'm going to take you to a really well-known narrative, and we're going to do the Reader's Digest version of it. And then we're going to take you to a little lesser-known narrative that is no less impressive and give you the Reader's Digest version of it as well. And then I'm going to tell you two stories from my personal life. So first of all, let's examine what I call the Joseph narrative found in Genesis 37 and then 39 through 50. The Joseph narrative is actually one that we're actually very familiar with. If I said, can someone give me a summary of, of, of the Joseph narrative? It's something that you've learned from like as a little kid in Sunday school or wanna and you guys could do a good job summarizing it. So it's something that we're very familiar with. Joseph, one of Jacob's 12 sons, was quote-unquote more loved by his father than any of the others, and so he was given a special colored cloak. And then he had a quote-unquote God-given dream. Joseph wasn't like, let me have this dream. God gave him this dream, indicating that his entire family, including his brothers, would come and bow down before him someday. And when his brothers found this out, they experienced what any of us would have experienced, right? They were jealous. And they decided to take matters into their own hands. And they devised a deceitful plan, and they sell him into slavery. And he was taken down into Egypt, and eventually he becomes a servant to Potiphar, who is one of Pharaoh's officials. And then it doesn't end there, but Potiphar's wife unsuccessfully tries to seduce him. And after false accusations were leveled against Joseph, he was then imprisoned. But even there, we read Genesis 39, verse 23, that says, the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, even while in prison... The Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. And I'm like, well, good. While there, you know, God had him in there for a reason. While there, here's the reason. He still possessed the ability to see and to interpret that which others could not see nor interpret. And that gave him actually some leverage to get out of prison, but only if he was remembered by the cupbearer to the king. You know the story, but what happens? Genesis 40, 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. What? Here's all of his leverage gone because he was forgotten. Well, Joseph was forgotten by the cupbearer, but he wasn't forgotten by God. Remaining in prison for that time was actually the dead center of God's sovereign plan for his life. And God continued to grant him favor and eventually the interpretation for Pharaoh's dream was given to him. And then this pagan Pharaoh who did not know God was so impressed with Joseph and his abilities and the true God's abilities that he releases Joseph and he made him the governor of Egypt for a time. And while in that position, he was wisely and wisely discerned things enough that he rationed the country's produce in preparation for a time of future famine that wasn't even coming, but it was going to happen at some point. And then when that time of famine finally arrived, Jacob's sons, who comes, right? They come marching down to Egypt, and they plead with Joseph for supplies. They don't recognize him, but after they demonstrate their remorsefulness with tears when the truth is told about this lost brother, he finally identifies himself with great joy. That's the story. Joseph then invites his, fathers and his, bro- his father and his brother to come and settle in Egypt for a time, and that invitation enabled God's chosen people to be preserved. And God's sovereign promises to Abraham were kept intact. And here is the capstone verse. You know it. Some of you have just held tightly to this one. And Joseph says this. At the end of this long narrative in chapter 50, As for you, you meant evil against me. But God meant it for good. You mean God can take the intentional... Plans for evil of other people and twist them and turn them and use them for good? Yes, that's what Joseph says. Why? To bring about for many people should be kept alive as they are today. So listen, so don't fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Really, God was providing through the sovereign plans of Joseph in prison and, and charges against them, and all this horrible stuff. But God was going to provide, right, for you and your little ones. And listen to this. Thus He comforted them. He comforted them with the horrific sovereign plans of God that led them to prison. He comforted them. And He spoke kindly to them. This is amazing. Joseph actually arrives at a place of surrender and he surrenders himself to the providential plans of God and although those plans had an incredible amount of hardships and sufferings, not only did Joseph himself find comfort, he was actually able to disperse and to dispense that comfort to those who had wronged him. Talk about a type of Christ, right? And what I want to say with the Joseph narrative is that you can't do that. You can't find comfort. You can't dispense and disperse the comfort that God has given you if you don't believe in a sovereign God who is both powerful and purposeful and good. You can't do it. You end up at Genesis 15 and you you have revenge. There's no way I'm going to provide for you. After what you did to me, you had intentional plans for evil against me. You can't do, that, that's the natural reaction, unless you believe in a sovereign God who is unfolding things according to the kind intention of His purpose and His will. So that's the Joseph narrative. You're very familiar with it. A lot of you could have summarized it probably even better than I did. But now I want to pivot to a lesser known man A man known by the name of Cyrus in the book of Isaiah. And his story is no less impressive to see how God moves and works in mysterious ways to accomplish his sovereign intentions. And I call this the Cyrus Initiative. And it's found in Isaiah 44, verses 24 through 45-25. Now listen, I'm just going to give you the Reader's Digest version of this. We're not going to read the whole text. But you'll be able to, if you look along there, as I read through it, you'll be able to see where I'm at, jumping around, kind of giving the Reader's Digest version. But what I want to tell you, from the very beginning of this, this story will floor you. This, this, just, I don't, it's really hard to even believe this story, unless you believe in a sovereign God. It's like, that doesn't hap- That didn't happen. There's no way. That can't be factual h- history. But actually, you look back and you see that it is. It's not just recorded for us in the Bible, but all throughout secular history. They record this narrative. They're like, well, only a sovereign God could have done that. This should floor you. Listen carefully. Get ready. Because this passage of Scripture is like watching a trailer for a movie that will debut in the future. But in this case, it would be a movie that's coming out in 100 years in the future, right? You know, that's quite the hype and the build-up. Coming to theaters, 2,122, right? Whoa, like, that's, that's a long time to wait, right? How do you know all the details of that story, of that movie, right? And in this case, it's what's really interesting. It's not a fiction movie that's coming out. It's actually a film documenting real historical events. No one but God alone could be the director So I want to point a biblical time frame out into your mind so that you have this as reference. So, here we go. Between like 700 and 686 B.C., Isaiah begins to write some of his prophecies down, and it's recorded for us. And Isaiah actually writes some things down that are very, very specific judgments that are to come upon God's people, Jerusalem. So here we go. we got about 686 B.C., like way back here, where the trailer of the movie comes out. But what I want to do is I want to fast forward 100 years and watch the actual movie. And then I want to go back and look at the trailer with you. Okay? So now fast forward 100. Let's see what happens to Jerusalem. Because in 586 B.C., Jerusalem, God's people, fall to the kingdom of Babylon. And what we see is that Isaiah didn't just predict it would happen. He actually foretells that it happened. It's it's not that he's good at guessing about what might happen. He's really good at revealing that which has been revealed and told to him by the only one who could give him this type of knowledge to a human, and that is the Almighty Sovereign God. So here's the actual factual movie of what happens. 586 Jerusalem Falls to Babylon. And then at 580 B.C., so six years later, there's actually a man named Cyrus who was born in Persia. And this man named Cyrus would eventually grow up and he would become the future king of Persia. And by the time 539 B.C. rolls around, it was the first year of his reign. This is the, mo- this is the movie actually taking place and from the book of Ezra, we see that one of the first things that he does after incorporating Babylon into his empire is to make a proclamation to rebuild Jerusalem that had been lying in ruins. Pagan king used of God to rebuild God's holy city. So in Ezra 1.1 and 1, two, this is what we read of the king of Persia, Cyrus. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia... That the word of the Lord by the prophet of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. And you're like, well, wait a minute, I thought you said Isaiah. Jeremiah preached about this stuff too. I'm just picking up in the Isaiah narrative because it's more dramatic in my mind, right? That that the mouth of Jeremiah, we could even add Isaiah there as well, might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia. The Lord stirred up the pagan king's heart. So that he made a proclamation throughout all of his kingdom and also put it in writing. Now I'm just not going to speak it, but let's write it down, right? Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth and he has charged me, pagan king, to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is at Judah or which is in Judah. So here we go. Cyrus is so stirred, even in his pagan heart, that he is going to release God's people back into their land. And this is not a story. This is factual history. And this is what took place. So now you say, okay, well, what's the big deal? Okay, God, God did that. What's the big deal? Here's the big deal. Let's go back and watch the trailer. I told you about what was going to come out in the summer of 21-22, right? Let's go back and look at the the real modern day trailer. What was Isaiah saying in his prophecy? And what Isaiah records in chapters 44-45 through of his prophecy is the incredibly specific, detailed foretelling of all the rescue plan of God to save his people by use of a pagan king. Like I said, I'm not going to read all of it here, but this is the Reader's Digest version. Remember, this this was written 100 years before the movie comes out. you got to get that. So here we go. This is what Isaiah writes. I, I, this is mind-boggling to me. This is what is revealed to Isaiah. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by Myself, who says of Cyrus, a man not yet born yet, who says of Cyrus, he is My shepherd, and he shall fulfill all My purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to His anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped to subdue nations before him and loose the belt of kings. For the sake of my servant Jacob, my my Israel, my chosen, I have called you by name. I name you, though you don't know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other besides me. There is no God. I equip you, though you don't know me that people may know from the rising of the sun from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light. I create darkness. I make well-being, and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Woe to Him who strives with Him, who formed Him. A pot among the earthen pots. Does this clay say to the one who forms it, what are you making? I made the earth, and I created man on it. It was my hand that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their hosts, and I have stirred him, Cyrus, pagan king, in righteousness. And I will make all his ways level, and he shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. End of trailer. Wow, you're right, God you're right you're right God this is a very This is a very unlikely, completely out of the box idea that you're going to pull off here in about a hundred years. A sovereign God accomplished his purposes listen. By using a pagan king of Babylon to punish his people and then bring them into exile because of their disobedience. But then in turn, he intends to raise up another king, another pagan king, who he named 100 years old, earlier before, by, by the way, right? Unbelievable. He used that king to execute a judgment on the aforementioned king of Babylon to execute judgment on him and his country for carrying God's people off into exile because they were disobedient. Well, there is a head-scratcher. What? What are you talking about? It seems very confusing to us. It almost sounds like one of those light bulb jokes. How many does it take to screw in a light bulb? How many pagan kings does it take to accomplish God's purposes? Well, apparently two here, right? Right? It seems very confusing. But what isn't confusing is, get this, all of this was the demonstration of a sovereign God flexing. He can do with His stuff what He wants, when He wants, how He wants. And I get it. People, that is very Very intimidating. This is no small God we're dealing with. But if you're one of His born-again children, all of this is meant for your future good. And so knowing that, you can experience His comfort in the present. So I want to show you, as we just kind of skip across the surface of the book of Isaiah for the rest of this story, I want you to look at some of these verses that we see in the subsequent chapters of Isaiah's message to God's people. And I just want you to see if you see the repeated theme. As we see God's sovereignty result in something. Just tell me if something jumps off the page. Isaiah 51.12 says, I, I am he who comforts you. Who are you that are you afraid of man who dies or the son of man who is made like grass? Isaiah 51.19 These two things have happened to you, so who will console you? devastation and destruction, famine and sword, who will comfort you? Isaiah 52, 9, break forth together into singing you waste places of Jerusalem, for the Lord has comforted his people, and he has redeemed Jerusalem. Isaiah 66, 13, as one whom his mother comforts, so I will comfort you, you shall be comforted in jerusalem they're going to be back in the land and god will comfort them there wow all of a sudden hopefully you're able to see the point of the second half of the prophecy of isaiah is true the opening verses the second half of isaiah's prophecy is this comfort comfort my people says your god that's how the second half of isaiah's prophecy opens up so what is the point of God's sovereignty? What can it result in? It can result in your what? Comfort. All the hardships and afflictions can simply result in your comfort, is what Isaiah starts with. And then he unlaces the details of what's going to happen. And he says, but God is going to still comfort you, all the way to chapter 66, like a mother who's wanting to comfort you. I will comfort you in Jerusalem. And at the time of writing, you're not even taken off into exile yet. But there's a sovereign plan and a sovereign God who will comfort you as these things are unfolding in your life. What this tells me and what I want to communicate to you is this. I want you to think of the sovereignty of God like a powerful current in a river. You can actually fight against it and you'll still be swept away. Or you can let it carry you. God's sovereign plans for your life, although hard to live through, will lead you to a river of comfort streaming from the very God whose sovereign plans for you, get this, included His very own Son dying on a cross that you deserve to die on. Comfort. Comfort, my people, says your God. It's meant for your comfort. So that's the Joseph narrative, and that's the Cyrus initiative. And I want to talk to you guys about how God's sovereignty can be a source of comfort to you in any season of life, as I share two stories from my life. So the first story is the story of Philip Brian Penner. Um, I was pretty wild and crazy um, in high school. I didn't know Christ. And I eventually became a Christian um, in the summer heading into my junior of high school. And it was a small town, and everybody knew that Sean was crazy and wild. And and I changed dramatically overnight because God had given me a new birth. I, I was different like that. June 8, 1996, my life completely changed. But I didn't really have many friends to walk alongside me in my new life. And I had... Um, For a few months, I was just reading the Bible on my own and growing. And I heard about a Bible study that was happening at another youth pastor's house. And I was interested in going to it because I was like, I need to get friends and walk with me in this stuff, right? And someone had mentioned to Phil that he should come to my house and pick me up. And Phil said, Sean Clark? That guy? (laughs) Why would he go to Bible study, right? Yeah, that guy. God had gotten a hold of me. And so Phil did. He showed up at my door, and he was actually wearing this. Do you remember this shirt? Supertones, right? Like, that's late 90s for you. And he's got the the S on the chest. Like, he really showed up in my life, and he was like a Superman person to me, right? He seemed a little bit like a superhero, and we grew in our friendship, and we we held each other accountable, and we, we cared for each other. I eventually went to Moody Bible Institute because he went to Moody Bible Institute. We roomed together on campus. We did ministry together. We rented a house together off of campus. We served in youth ministry together. We did all of life together. And then we were actually officially commissioned into full-time ministry on the same day. When I became the student ministry pastor at Bethel Community Church, and then Phil was going to be a missionary in Indonesia with an organization called Pioneers. Look at that. That's me, and that's my friend Rob, and then my other friend Phil. Phil graduated from Moody Bible Institute. He had finished his master's degree from Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. He was married, and he had a two-year-old daughter, and they were making headway for the gospel in Bandung, Indonesia. Now Bandung, Indonesia is a city of 2.4 million people with a 96% population for being Muslim. And I want to show you a video of what Phil was able to do within a year and a half of being there. He had a Christmas party for the community, a celebration of Jesus Christ party for the community where 96% of the population is Muslim. This is Phil Penner.
1: What <laughs> Anggaplah mencagirkan asitud saya hanya coba berangkat sampai itu. Saya membuat lubang sekecil ini supaya bisa lihat begini. Lubang menyo kecil begitu. Ada anak saya mau berangkat kira-kira begitu berbahaya. Tapi berbahaya. Ternyata saya coba begini. Rafitti tiba-tiba saya, saya hampir menabrak satu orang yang sedang berjalan kaki.
0: You look at that ministry effectiveness. Surely God was going to do something amazing with his life. So you can imagine my concern when our church secretary called me on Monday morning, June 16, 2008, and told me that I needed to pray for Phil because he was sick. And you can imagine my shock when she called me 30 minutes later telling me that Phil had died from cardiac arrest after a short battle with dengue fever and pneumonia. He was 29, he was a husband, he was a father who had a two-year-old girl. He was educated, he was willing to go. He learned the language, he built the relationships. He was preaching Jesus in a place that had a 96% of the population that didn't know him, and then God took him from the earth. What? Why? sovereign it was actually really hard to stomach conversations with people and being in pastoral ministry those days to help people grieve appropriately because so often all of us me included want to assign meaning and purpose to these things it's natural to answer that want to answer the question why and I had so many people say things to me like well maybe god will use his death and a whole bunch of people will become christians and what I saw in that is like, I get it. I get it potentially, right? But it's like they're trying to create some loophole in the tragedy in order to get God off the hook for doing something like this. Well, God wasn't on the hook. He didn't need to get off of it. My only consolation in those days came from my recent study of the book of Romans. That summer, I was teaching through it to our students. And Paul's spontaneous doxology at the Romans 11, at the end of Romans 11, was my only source of comfort, and he says this, "O, oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God, how unsearchable are his judgments, how inscrutable his ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, who has given a gift that to him he might be repaid? For from him through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen." And all of a sudden. I wasn't in the center of the solar system. God was in His glory. And the unsearchable judgments and the inscrutable ways resulted in my comfort. I had to trust that He knew what He was doing, and I embraced that as an act of my faith, and then I grieved. I didn't pretend that I knew what God was doing, because if I did, I knew that I would shortchange the glory that He ought to receive, even in the death of my friend. And so I leaned into the tension. And by an act of my childlike faith, I embraced it. You know, children don't always understand everything that parents do, right? (laughs) You ever been in that situation? So sometimes kids just have to trust and obey in order to experience the blessingness and personal happiness. And so I leaned into and embraced the sovereignty of God instead of trying to kick against it. And it was a comfort to me. And I want to tell you one more story. It's a second story that I want to share with you, it's very personal, and, and even still ongoing in some ways. I want to fast-forward five years, and Suzanne and I want to start a family, and Suzanne becomes pregnant, and the pregnancy is pretty normal until the 20-week ultrasound that revealed that the, doc- and the, and the 20-week ultrasound revealed what the doctor communicated to us was a cyst that would be associated with a risk for a fatal disorder. And so that kind of set us on a collision course for anxiety and uncertainty throughout the pregnancy. And so she had more additional screenings throughout the rest of the pregnancy. And then the due date comes, and then the due date goes. And we really just want to get it over with, right? You're tired of all the waiting. You just want this child to appear. You really want the pregnancy to end so all the waiting and really the worrying can stop. And, well, the due date comes, and the due date went. And as it did, we were reminded that we just weren't in control of the situation. And so the waiting and the worrying continues on for four more days. I was actually in my office and I had just read the story from John 11 of the story of Lazarus. And a message actually in that story comes to Jesus and that his good friend Lazarus was sick and he's potentially on his deathbed. And instead of rushing right away to his friend's side to administer care, we read an editorial comment that shocks us from John. And he says this, So when Jesus heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place that he was. (laughs) What? What? And then, reading through the story, Mary and Martha watch their brother die. And then Jesus shows up. Imagine what they felt. Verse 17 of that chapter says this, Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. And here I was, four days, waiting for the birth of our child, and I, just, I was just wrestling with this. And so I grabbed my guitar, and I went out into the gym that had amazing acoustics, by the way. And uh, I sat down, I was like, I just need to write a song and get some of this angst out on paper. Um, and I had also been studying Psalm 29. Psalm 29 is all about a God who is sovereign and powerful, doing whatever he wants to do. And David actually likens God to a thunderstorm. And then in verse 9, we get the reason for which everything in creation exists. Listen to what Psalm 29 verse 9 says. The voice of the Lord makes the deer give birth and strips the forest bare, and all in his temple cry out, Glory. The word that he uses is kabod. It's heavy. There's a heaviness. There's a weightiness to who our God is. And so I wanted to put some of these thoughts that I was having and wrestling with down in a song form. I want to share the song with you and then continue on the story. But maybe you find yourselves here often.
1: I don't understand your timing. It makes no sense to me. Sometimes you're four days late and people die.
0: But your grace is all sufficient, it's all part of your decree. You're working in ways that I can't clearly see. Have you ever read in Romans of a God with a sovereign plan, who works all things with one thing on his mind? Whoever sang the chorus, he's got the whole world in his hands And doubted every verse and word of every line
1: Outside these moments One day we'll see Things that seem broken out glory. Have you ever thought of Joseph lying in that pit, and then
0: thrown away and sold and sent away, but then thrown into prison for a crime he didn't commit,
1: but then rise to power with a plan to save his race. Outside these moments, one day we'll see things that seem broken, shout glory, glory. the fork in the road
0: when your hopes were gone along with your dreams trying to cast every worry trying to lighten up the load quoting I will not forsake and I will never
1: leave after these moments one day I'll see all you have spoken, shout glory, shout glory, so I'll raise my voice, shout glory.
0: so it felt good It's um, kind of, it wasn't like a grieving moment, but it was just like crying out to God in the moment with just not being in control. And so I felt good to put some of what I was feeling into song form, but my song was really a prayer to God for a long season of waiting to end. And it wasn't until day 11 that our son was born. And when he was born, he was placed on Suzanne, but he wasn't breathing, and his heart rate was slowing down. He was bluish, and there was little to no movement and dead silence. No crying. Within a few seconds, a team of do- or a dozen or so ICU people rushed through the doors and immediately removed him from Suzanne and huddled around him in the corner of the room. And in that exact moment, I looked directly at Suzanne, and I said, our God is in control of this. And I started praying out loud that our son would breathe. And I'm not necessarily saying that I felt God's peace in that moment, but I did understand that if there was anyone capable of causing life to happen, it was going to be up to God and His sovereignty, and that was going to be the only source of comfort for us. And so I talked out loud to Him about my concerns, and within a few moments another voice was heard. It was the cry of Elijah, our firstborn son. He was breathing. Now many of you are familiar with what is called the Afgar test. Basically, it's a quick test performed on a baby to indicate to health care providers how the baby is doing after birth, and they scored from 0 to 10, and Elijah got a 1. God, in his sovereignty and for his purposes, gave Elijah a 1, and his young life was unfolding according to plan. Gratefully, it was in his plan to revive Elijah and raise his Abgar score considerably within a few minutes, and even though it felt like an eternity, but our waiting wasn't over. Although he was breathing and things seemed to be somewhat normal, even though this was our first go-around, we had no idea what normal was, and I don't know if anybody does when their firstborn is born. Elijah didn't actually pass a genetic disorder screening test, which indicated to us that there's potential for him to have any number of genetic disorders, so more waiting for us. And within a few days, someone would be following up with us. More waiting. And then one day... As I was sitting in my office planning musical worship, I got a call from our doctor's office indicating how to go about scheduling additional blood tests at Children's Memorial Hospitals, which is a specialized hospital in downtown Chicago. And as I was gathering all this data, I was just scribbling names and numbers and doctors down on a piece of paper on a folder. And what happened was, as I was planning musical worship, I had just been writing all this stuff down on a song file called, Come Praise and Glorify Our God. I have it in my office, though. I totally forgot to bring it over. I was going to show you. That folder contained the song, Come Praise and Glorify, which says, To the praise of Your glory, to the praise of Your mercy and grace, to the praise of Your glory, You are the God who saves. And so that was consoling me that it was about God and His glory. And although we had more things to endure the days ahead and more periods of waiting, I knew that God's sovereignty would be our only source of comfort. He is in control of all of this, and we are not. Every square inch of the universe is His to the praise of His glory. And as I was thinking through this story, this narrative, and I was interacting with Suzanne on this this week, she said to me, quote, no wonder I was traumatized. And I said, yeah. Yeah. That's traumatic. That has lasting effects on you. Sovereignty can be scary but our God is good and he's actually able to comfort us even if the worst thing that we can ever imagine happens. Once again, let me remind you, God's sovereign plans included the death of his own son so that we might experience life and eternal comfort. And as it turns out, Elijah has no genetic disorders except for his excessive need to know everything about everything. All right? (laughs) He will ask you a million questions, right, that you don't know the answer to. So as we close... I know this is heavy. In one situation, it seemed like, well, it didn't go the way I wanted it to. In the other situation, it seemed like it went the way it wanted to. But they're both lasting ramifications. But as we close, I I want you to let God comfort you. You know what he said? He says, my peace I give you. I give it to you. So I want you to allow God to comfort you as you embrace his sovereign plans for your life, even when you don't understand why he does what he does. He does. He does. And I want to be careful how I say this because we might not get all these answers. But when it is all said and done, when you are in the presence of your Savior face to face and He begins wiping every tear away from your eyes, maybe, I don't know, but maybe in that moment, I don't know if we get exhaustive knowledge about why God does, He's still God, but maybe in that moment, you'll begin to see what felt like a series of randomly plotted out dots on the pages of your life, were, in actuality the intricate, well-thought-out, and thoroughly planned dot-to-dot sketch of a beautiful mosaic that was for your good and that in the end will have brought him the most glory. Maybe you see that then. You certainly won't see it now. But maybe you'll see it then. And in that moment, you'll shout Glory the way the Apostle Paul did to the Ephesians when he says to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Let's pray. God, I pray that as we close with this last song, it's, it, this is a hard song to sing, but also it's a comforting song for us to remind ourselves of, that not for a moment have you forsaken us, even if we felt like you were a thousand miles away and we have no idea what you are doing and maybe our dreams have been crushed and we're still dealing with the trauma of past pain, that was your intended um, intentions that are worked out in a sovereign way that we don't understand. God, I pray that we would see that you're carrying us all along the way. And God, as we enter into a time of singing and worship, that this would be a song that, uh, that will carry us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand as we sing together.